Hey, back at you, Chat Belding, This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. You guys, uh, if you paid attention yesterday, we had uh, what we call the Renaissance Man of the Outdoors, Mr. Dave Stanley. He was my guest. We talked for a good two hours yesterday. I learned a lot more about him and his ideologies on duck hunting, scouting, conservation, the biological makeup of ducks and the flocks and where we're going. And we even got into regulations a little bit. And we topped it off with uh, getting new people introduced to the lifestyle of the American duck hunter, Canadian duck hunter, females, kids, doesn't matter who who it is. We, uh, we kind of come up with the theory that somebody needs to step up and take responsibility for trying to grow our sport and getting it back to the numbers that it experienced back in the 50s and 60s. <clears throat> Excuse me. So today I'm even even a little bit more humbled because we have Dave Stanley again, as well as his son, John David Stanley III. And when it comes to being what I call a quote unquote killer and a master of so many different calls, and I mean Canada goose, speckle belly goose, speckle belly goose, snow goose, mallard duck. You could do you could throw a whistle in there for a Drake Mallard or a Pintail. Turkey calls, elk calls, you name it. This kid can do it. He's not really a kid anymore, but I've known him since he was a kid. I heard he just turned what, 31? 33 years freaking old. Holy smokes. And let's just all send a if you guys can follow John David Stanley on Instagram, you could send him a huge congratulations that he now is engaged to his girlfriend name, please. Ali Beck. Ali Beck from Alberta, Canada. He went north of the border and found him a good one. And I'm talking a good one. An artiste, a fly fisherman, a waterfowl nut. She's awesome. She's been to my house several times, and she's great. I'm proud of him. Congratulations, J.D. Thanks, buddy. Um, Dave, talk to me a little bit, just real quick, what it meant. You know, we touched on it yesterday. What did it mean to you when you made that transition from being the – non-stop what some people would probably come out you know promote is in your in it for yourself kind of duck hunter where we all go through that stage in life we, we care about the stacks the limits and being aggressive with them all of a sudden you get married and you have this kid and when when was it time did you know was it natural that you knew hey it was time to get jd in the marsh yeah he um was around it from the time we were carrying him around i have a picture of him when he was a little over two years old and a camouflage one piece deal you know and he's standing there by the layout boat with a stack of decoys over his head and and that was the first time he went and he's been going ever since it was uh, and it did totally change my you know my focus on waterfowl hunting you know when he was little before he was shooting it was about him staying warm and being comfortable and having fun and make sure the thermos is full of hot chocolate and you know you got a lot of cookies and candy that his mom wouldn't give him at home but you know, you want to keep them coming back, so you do that. And uh, and then once he started hunting, it was just that's what he does, man. He, he he loves it. He's loved it from the get go. And uh, and then it just became fun doing it with him. You know, and now I don't get to do it with him quite as much. So it's really fun when I get to do it with him, like tomorrow. In those days when it first started, you know, the first time you had him in the marsh, and what what. What does a, a father feel, you know, like you, you see dads at a baseball game or a Little League game or a Pop Warner game, their kid scores their touchdown or shoots their first basket into the goal in a basketball game or hits their first home run, whatever it might be. You trans you transform that or, you know, 
transition that into the outdoors. Was it driving a boat? Was it not getting cold? Was it learning his first quack on a mallard call? Was it squeezing that trigger and getting his first harvest? When did you just go, man, this is like complete. Did it all happen at once? Or was there, was there just like one certain moment that you went, man, this kid's got it, or he's going to be in it to win it. I, I can remember a couple of days when he was really little way before he started shooting that we were out there and the hunting wasn't necessarily so good, but he was he was totally into every, I mean, he wanted to be the guy who saw the ducks first, you know, when we killed one, the one of those days, you know, he wanted to check them out. He wanted to know about all these feathers and everything. And then you could just tell that he had, you know, he, he saw how much fun I was having. He wanted to have that much fun. And then it became fun for me just watching him have that much. So kind of <laughs> traded roles, but, um, but yeah, it was before he started shooting, you know, I, I mean, I remember the second he shot his first duck and his first goose. Um, and you know, I'll never forget either one of those, but, um, but there was a lot of time before that, that laid the groundwork for that, you know, days where I went out and really wanted to hunt and did for a little while. And then it became about, you know, doing something with him that he wanted to do. Cause you know, you're, you have a fairly short attention span when you're three or four years old. Yeah. <laughs> and, and some of us have one later on in life too. So, um, including all three of yeah, us. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Those are the three people I was thinking of, but, but you know, it, it obviously once you start hunting, there's the, you know, from a parent's perspective, or at least from my perspective as a parent, the, the biggest thing about when they take that step to hunting is the whole safety thing. You know, you don't want them to have a bad experience. You don't want to get shot either. Um, and you don't want them to hurt the dog or themselves or you, you know. Um, and so you, you, before they ever start hunting, you know, you tell them why you put your gun on safe and why you don't lean it up against the, you know, the side of the blind as opposed to putting it in the corner where it won't slide or, or when you get out of the blind, why you take the shell out of the chamber and all of that. Um, so they had it, you know, and, and his sister who came along five years after him, it's the same way. She's as crazy about hunting as he is. And, uh, um, it was a little easier with her because she had her brother as the model. Um, but you know, that when they, it's, it's a big deal when they start hunting, you know, and any dad will tell you that when he, the first time you take them out there and they have live ammo in that gun, it's, it's scary, you know, yeah. but it should be. It should yeah. be because then you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is pay attention to those kids and forgetting about the hunt. It doesn't have anything to do with the hunt at that point. It's yeah. to make sure they become responsible hunters that, you know, you, you want to hunt around for the rest of your life. I couldn't agree more. Very well said. And JD, do you remember, do you have a vivid, you know, just in your image bank, do you remember the canvas back for the first time when you were old enough to know it for the first time? I'm not talking about, it's probably hard when you were two or three or four getting carried around out there, but do you remember the, you know, do you have a vivid picture in your head of knowing where the canvas back club was the first time and seeing the buildings and the street signs and all that? Yeah. I mean, I remember going out there at well, I think my dad became a member in 92. 90. 90. So, you know, I remember our cabin when it was literally a cabin, a shell, and there was a camp trailer parked inside of it, the barn doors. You've been out there. Like, those old barn doors, doors were functional then. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can still remember where, like, it's crazy, the stuff that I can remember. I remember when my dad killed the first band he ever killed at the canvas back. I was there. Killed it in Big Arthur. Like, I mean, stuff like that, you know, my first goose I killed on New Year's Day mm -hmm. in Freeman 9. Like, so, yeah, I got a ton of memories of it. And it just, and I spent so much time out there and my dad was so involved during the summers, you know, doing 
blind you know i think the, when he was first on any of the committees or anything he was in charge of the blinds he and crockett were so i um i was always out there during the summer and then i got to be friends with the um with the ranch foreman's son so then i had a buddy and he's five or six years older than me so we just i spent every summer out there until i was literally 18 because i started working out there when i was 13 or 14 during the summer so you fast forward working every summer until you're 18 through high school mm -hmm. and now here you are 33 which is 15 years later and you still have so much pride in the canvas bat club and the stillwater marsh of nevada that you now you still come back here mm -hmm. pretty much at least for a month or two a year right to do mm -hmm. some work and help john with the farming and the ranching any maintenance that needs to be done and then you know we're going to get into what you, t you you experience after that throughout the year but there's something to be said about where you really learn to hunt and and that's what you know i don't really have that i, I learned you know going from marsh to marsh in nevada but never really had what we called the abode yesterday to go back to and that's it's it's something that creates a lot of envy in my in me for people like you that have that that place to that you grew up and you have all these vivid memories of it i knew the tool on and i knew greenhead but it wasn't when i was five years old it was when i was 27 28 years old you know so the, the waterfowl lifestyle is so special to me in that in, in in the last 15 years of my life that knowing that you guys have lived it your entire lives that's pretty cool to me yeah yeah i mean it's you know having uh, that place is invaluable like to grow up there was incredible you know and and there's you've been around just like i have there's there's not a lot of places that have six thousand solid acres to call their own yeah you know that's a that's a big piece of ground and then when the hunt's over is like i would say that a lot of your guys's friendships to this day right now were formed within those grounds and those six thousand acres but really inside right around what you guys call city hall yep and I remember dinners at Morgan's or, you know, the Nesbitt's out there and you got the Opio's out there. You got the, the, I mean, you, you name a hunting family in this part of the country. Um, you, they, they were a member or still are a member of the canvas back club, but a lot of your friendships to this day, Dave, right. We're, we're yeah. formed right there. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and then when a lot of guys I wouldn't have necessarily become friends with, not because they're bad guys or anything, or because I am just because we wouldn't have had anything common as we were bringing our kids along, you know, and they were experiencing the time out there. Then we became friends because of our kids. And, and I know that John, David and Katie will have already have, and will continue to have lifelong friends that totally came from duck hunting. The majority of your friends come from that yeah. because that's where you make your living too. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, it's you know it, it's it's been that experience and you're right um it's different going out in the morning getting up at 3 30 driving to wherever you're going to hunt hunting all day and then driving back home right first of all you're not going to get to hunt the next day because <laughs> because most dads won't do that two days in a row um you know whereas if you've got a cabin and you leave the cabin at 5 30 in the morning and you're back to the cabin at seven o'clock at night and you know you get a good night's sleep and you get up at five and go again it's no big deal so um that that is a big plus and not everybody has that opportunity and we were lucky enough to and in the right place at the right time and uh and the kids really benefited from it you know it was, and so did i i mean i'm way closer to my kids because of duck hunting than and fly fishing than most anything than anything else that mm -hmm. we do and i would i would say that that's probably the most important 
element in this lifestyle is the chemistry that it brings between strangers and the bond that it forms between father, son, father, daughter, husband, wife, whatever it is, extended family, immediate family, or a total stranger, you get in a duck blind with them. Chances are you're exchanging phone numbers, right? Yeah, absolutely. And John, David, do you, do you, I I want you both to think about this. I'm asking your dad second, but if you wake up in the morning or you look at the forecast the night before, what do you hang your hat on as your day to be in the marsh? Private on the on the canvas back club or in the public area right next door. What do you want to see when everything aligns for you when you know it's on? And talk to me about what the migration's doing, what birds are around, what is the weather, what what give me the atmosphere at what you like to see in that area of Nevada. So I think more important than anything than wind or any of that is moon phase and temperatures. You know, rather than having wind, I'd rather have 20 to 25 degrees at night and a high of 45 because all the shallows freeze up. Those birds have to go out and sit on big water. And then it gets warm enough during the day that it heats those mud flats up or those bays. And then the water melts out and they slowly trickle in there to feed. And they only get a short window. It's that, it's that you've been through it. You know, you did it with Tackett and my dad, like that, that 10 to two, like it's, that's, that's the dream time for me. And, in, in, in the marshes in Nevada anyway, like that's, that's bigger than wind. It's, it's better than wind. It's more consistent because it doesn't blow birds off. They get to go where they want to go instead of where they have to go to get out of the wind. Um, so, so what about, what about sky? What, what sky do you want on that day? Does it matter? Blue. I like shadows. You know, cloudy, cloudy is hard to hide. It's flat light. Every, they see everything in high definition. You know, it's whereas when you got shadows, camo is a lot more effective. Um, you, you can just hide better as long as you're not facing in the sun. But that's another thing you got to think about. Yeah, your dad touched on that yesterday about learning how to side shoot them and set up with mm-hmm. the sun, not any if it happens to be a west wind or a northwest wind. Dave, is, I see you shaking your head. Is that pretty much exactly how you would answer that question? Yeah, and, and the, the, the deciding factor for me is, is it cold enough to create ice? If it is, then John David's right, 18 or 20 in the morning and 40 or 45 in the daytime, clear and sunny. Uh, you don't need a you don't need a breath of wind other than to line the birds up, you know, and that's that's ideal December and January hunting where we hunt. Um, if 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 that's not the case, if it's a little warmer, then I want it clear, sunny, no clouds, and a 15 or 20 mile an hour breeze blowing from whatever direction. I don't even care, you know. Um, I think the wind just it, it gets the birds off the big water earlier mm-hmm. than than if uh, you don't have it, and um, the sun makes it easy to hide pretty much the answers i thought i would get on that but i I, i've been out there probably 10 times on those days where at one o'clock you're like wow you know you start to see that water start to sneak up on top of that sheet ice it starts to melt off and then all of a sudden those ducks know it's like they just know they know like at noon 12 31 o'clock that they're gonna get get, be able to get into those shallows and get Mm -hmm. food what when you talk about light jd and i know that in the last pretty much two years 24 months you've really gotten into photography mm-hmm. has that made you a better given you a better understanding i should say of why that flat light makes everything pop a little bit more harder to hide as opposed to having you know a lot of photographers don't like going out on a bluebird day with the sun high and 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 fe- messing with those shadows and everything to get the right picture has it taught you to have a better understanding of how to hide and how to get 
in a position or at least an understanding of what those birds might be seeing in that flat light because of what you've been able to teach yourself to see through the lens? Yeah. Um, you, you know, you, you realize how much harder edges look in flat light, like particularly the human figure standing in brush, standing in cover or whatever. Whereas when there's shadows, like you lose part of it, right? Like it's, which is the camo doing its job. Um, as far as learning a lot from it, kind of just reiterated myself what I feel like I had already figured out, which it, it, it just was more back up to, well, that's why this works in this light. And that's why this doesn't work. You know, it's it, it, taking pictures, you know, you generally always want the sun at your back, right? So it's lighting up whatever target you're taking pictures of it makes you realize why it's so effective to hunt with the sun at your back. Yeah. Like they can't, you know, you have every advantage and you know that from predator hunting, it's the same thing. If you right. can get somewhere where they're looking in the sun, yeah, you hide 10 times better. And what about, what about in where you hunt in California, Dave? And I'm, I'm just transitioning now because I want to, I want to figure this light deal out. I hear a lot of California butte sink rice field flooded rice guys in Arkansas, Louisiana say that they don't mind a gray day. They don't mind an you know a low ceiling. I, I've seen some a lot of success on snow geese, but why is that in a rice check in a flooded rice field? Mainly, it's the hide that uh, it, in a rice check you're hunting in a finite area and you can have a tank blind, you know, and you're so you're below the surface of the ground. So first of all, all you have to do is hide yourself from the neck up. If you've got sliding tops with rice straw and brush on them, you know, that, that match the check you're on. It's really easy to hide. Um, but you're stuck within one spot, you know, um, but most people are, you know, they they belong to a club or they, you know, I know in California, a lot of that in the rice country, you know, you're literally buying a seat in the blind, you know, and, and so that's where you're going to be. So what you need to do in those cases is just make sure you've got that thing covered up as much as you can, you know, and, and a good good sliding top goes a long way to killing ducks over there. So what when you when you start to see the a storm form right, and you know that something's coming off the coast or wherever you're at, if it's coming down from the north or whatever, what is the ultimate optimum time for a duck hunter or a goose hunter to hunt? Is it? let's say that this part of the country is going to get some snow, or like when we were in Canada, we know that the snow is going to come. Um, we know we're going to get three inches by the next morning at eight a.m. Where, when is the best time to hunt you think or what is your personal favorite i've heard a lot of people say i want to hunt while it's snowing or like what would you tell me like when would you say chad there's gonna be three inches of fresh snow tomorrow you need to be out there right i would i would say that afternoon before when the wind comes up and is, and you know that air is pushing in from that storm that's obviously obviously i mean that's a great time to be there when the wind kicks up where whenever you're hunting whatever you're doing and then if it's gonna snow for out here where we are while you can kill some birds in the snow, it's a hassle with your decoys and everything. I think the second it stops, you want to already be out there. But, you know, when, when that storm breaks, and particularly if it's been snowing for a, you know, 10-hour period or something like that, those birds are going to fly. they got to go eat, you know, and they haven't. And most of them haven't flown while it was snowing. But are you saying that your first answer is the JD? Would you say that his first answer is what you would choose the afternoon before when the the, the winds start to come in, announcing that storm and and pre like that storm's on its way? Those birds, what they get a feeling and the the pressure's dropping, well, they got to eat. Yeah, what it is is it's yeah you want to hunt them on the front end edge of a storm. Like I don't care where it is, 
in my opinion, that's what I want to be there is at the beginning because most birds, it's a wave, right? Like there's a big wave of air there and precipitation and everything on the clouds. Migratory birds are going to push on the front of a storm more than the tail end um, because the jet stream's forcing it down. Um, yeah, that, that initial pressure drop, you know, falling pressure for hunting, whether it be big game or waterfowl, I think a dramatic fall in pressure is much better than a rise in pressure, you know, which is the, which would be the tail end of the storm as it's clearing out. Um, because they've kind of, they just have to reset after a storm. Whereas when it first hits, like you've been in Idaho, when it first hits, you know, they, they, the, the instinct to feed is there and it doesn't, it's the, those are the days that you can't do anything wrong, you know? That's the days where you get done so fast. You're standing there in the cornfields in Idaho or whatever, and you're picking up decoys and the birds are landing next to you. And you're just like, it's January. How can they be this dumb? Well, it's because Mother Nature is telling them they have to eat or they're not going to survive. So you touched on that yesterday is that hunger is what causes the brain of a wild animal. It's either going to be hunger or it's going to be what a lot of people refer to as the rut when you talk whitetail or something. When it's breeding time and their sex drives high, that's when the brains of these animals start to get a little bit wiggly, right? Yep, absolutely. I think so. Yep. So when you when you apply the the sunlight to a hunting scenario, does it matter if you're hunting dry land or, or water? Does it help you more over water or sun or, or over dry land, or is it about the same? Do you want sun on both days, preferably? I do. It's harder on water because if you can't get that sun to where it's on a favorable location, not only are you dealing with the sun, but you're dealing with the reflection of the sun off the water. And it makes your visibility, you know, your ability to see things a lot harder. Um, but yeah, I, I, even with that, I'd way rather it be clear than, than cloudy. You know? So when you say you, it's clear now, you got what you want when, with the sky, mm-hmm. but there's no wind, there's no ice. Now what's the most important thing on that day over the water to have success if you don't have wind, but you know there's ducks in the area and they're coming. It's not that cold, but you know they're not coming and searching for that food when that ice melts at one o'clock in the afternoon. What's the next most important thing when you, add that, when you have that sun? Location. You gotta like be you got, Yeah, when you're dealing with warm, like now is a prime example. It's super warm, but there's a bunch of ducks around. Um, scouting's everything you know it's it's you really need to be where they want to be because not that many of them are generally moving when it's warm you know they're they're moving after hours or so you gotta you gotta maximize those few opportunities that you're gonna get you know i think you really need to be where they want to be um wind obviously wind's helpful in that situation with no ice um but so when you say wind your dad is you taught me the importance of a jerk rig over the years and you hear it a lot with duck hunters ripples you need to have ripples right you need to have that water stirred up and i've been really paying attention um because in the last four or five years since these drones have become so so you know utilized in what we do it we i have them fly our guys fly them over bodies of water that you know in the summertime and just looking at water and it's amazing what the difference is with ripples on the water because the real the, the fact is is that ducks don't really quit moving right when they're on the water they're always kicking their feet pretty much to stay you know in one in one direction or the other to spin around or even when they're sleeping so 
how important are ripples to a water hunt if you don't have wind is is in your dad and i touched on it yesterday jd you a jerk rig is probably one of the most important tools in a water duck hunter's arsenal right absolutely you know i mean it's yeah movement's everything and it's not always you know it's you know you know from hunting in the timber like it doesn't even necessarily have to be movement of the decoys but movement of the water kicking water standing next to a tree kicking water you know i mean it's making that water look nervous is is a big big thing and it's a big confidence for them for the birds because that's what they're used to seeing they don't see stale water or flat water they see ripples dave there's a lot of manufacturers that build these jerk strings these jerk rigs we talked about auto jerk system yesterday which is an automatic one let's say that you go out in the marsh this afternoon and you don't you forgot it 90 miles away but you have to have it no wind what's is there a quick fix to this is there an easy way that a guy can what materials does he need and and what, what's your favorite way to build one in a hurry um well it you know you have to have a couple things that you might not have laying around in your boat but you know basically you need about four feet four or five six feet of bungee cord and then you can make it you can tie it to an anchor you can tie it to anything and then you can knot a couple decoys to a piece of line and and make it work i mean i've made makeshift ones before you know but the key is you need to have something that stretches in there and bungee cord is the most durable you can use surgical tubing and stuff like that but the sun eats it up pretty quick so where does the where does the stretchy material the bungee material go right next to the anchor is where i put it you so know, away from the stake yeah mm-hmm. yeah so, away from so whether you. it's a stake or a or an anchor an actual physical you know heavy anchor the next thing on that is going to be whatever length of stretch cord you have and then you tie your cord that the decoy is attached to so the, the, the ideology behind it is that in your hand or whoever's controlling or working that jerk rig that day has a hold of a non-stretchy material, but when they pull it, they expand that stretchy material that's anchored off, and when they let go of it, it blows back towards the anchor, shaking those decoys. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and having those decoys on a, you know, they're attached to the, the main line that you're pulling, and having them on a, like a six-inch tether is more preferable than like snapping them right to the line. Because then when you let go of that thing and it pulls them all back, then they have a chance to kind of swim around. Whereas if they're all just snapped right to the line, they just go and push the water. They create the ripples, but then they don't look all that natural. They're all still in the same. They're they're all still lined up together instead of. So what's the length of that piece? Like six inches is plenty. Yes, a four to six inch loop off the decoy. With a and then how and then you tie and then a swivel or something to tie it off on or just have your your, on on mine. You know the ones I make they're. The swivel is tied onto the main line, and so I just clip that swivel to the loop that is on the decoy. That That's on the keel. Mm-hmm. Comes off the keel. Yeah. So you have decoys that are designated for a jerk rig. Yeah, yeah. because if you don't, then you're going to be messing with lines getting tangled as they spin around and everything. You can do it, and it's better than nothing if that's what you got at the time. But but yeah, if you're going to have a jerk string, you should have decoys that are specifically for the jerk string. And what would those decoys be if you had your preference? Meaning, is it a surface feeder? Is it a butts up, a, a, a mallard drake or a hidden mallard butts up in the air feeding decoy? Is it re- Can you just do it with regular decoys as long as you have something on there? Mm-hmm. I think so. Um, I don't like to do it with water decoys because if you get excited and pull the thing really fast, it'll flip them upside down. The you know? water keels? Yeah, water keels. Um, what did I say? Water decoys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, water keel decoys. I, I like weighted keel decoys just because they they ride right. But other than that, I mean, you're really what you're looking for is that pushing that water. So honestly, if they have a little heavier keel, it's better because they push more water. 
you know, when you let that bungee cord retract, you know, that heavy keel, the decoy sitting down in the water a little better and it pushes a little more water, you know. Um, but as far as the, the, whether it's a feeder decoy or any of that, I don't think it's critical. Avery used to make them and they may still make them. They made those big butt feeders, you know, with the big heavy thing on the bottom the flat, and they wobble, right? So you pull those things and let go of it. And that thing will wobble for 30 seconds after you let go of the jerk cord. That's pretty good. You know, um, they're the only ones like that I've yep. ever seen like that. Nope, um, those are my favorite. Yeah. So you have the jerk rig out there now and you're utilizing it on a non-windy day. What is the importance of color now with decoys? A lot of guys will touch them up, repaint them, buy new decoys. But what I've seen with you guys over the last 15, 20 years is how important white is, meaning that you guys have become, become known in that area of Nevada for killing swans. We're one of the states in the country that you can legally harvest a swan, up to two a year for, for the residents. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe non-residents, too, can, can get two tags. Yep. But I've been with you guys on swan hunts where you not only put out swan decoys, but you put out canvas back decoys, sprig decoys, and then kill mallards in gadwall. Is there something that goes off in a, in a puddle duck's head that might not necessarily be accustomed to white within his species that they look at that and say that's safety or that's confidence when they see that those colors? Or, what is it, or does it just get their t- attention and keep their attention? I think it's a little bit of all of that. Mostly in the marshes that we hunt in, when you see canvasbacks and swans, which are generally a lot of the time they're together in the marsh, right? They don't like being, they don't like people. They're, you know, they're not as tolerant of um, traffic, boat traffic, truck traffic, whatever, as mallards will be, because mallards will swim back in the cover, right? I think it's a, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a safety thing. Like if they're there, everything's cool, you know? Um, that visibility. You know, they can, I mean, you know how far away you can see, you can see a swan decoy from two miles away in that valley in still water. Like they're, you know, white shows up better than dark, like than a dark decoy. It just does, you know, it pops. It's no different than putting snow geese in your Canada spread. If you're running traffic, it shows up better. So would you agree with that, Dave, that a duck gets up off of the roost and he's flying over to where he's going to feed? And from a long distance, as, as we talked about what a mojo was invented for, the spinning effect of a mojo and that flash, the, mean, the main reason why they did that back in the day was to get the ducks at least in that general vicinity for you to call at them or use mm-hmm. the rest of your arsenal to get them tied mm-hmm. to kill them. You saying that that's that what you've experienced in your duck hunting career, that white gets their attention, at least gives you a chance? Yes, I think so. And if you think about it, like, you know, throwing a dozen or two dozen canned decoys in your, you know, if you're going to shoot mallards, that's fine. But I almost always, from this time of year, from the end of October forward, almost always have some canned decoys in the mix just because they're around, right? But if you think about it, on a windy day or a day where you got some chop on the water, well, those white butts going up and down, they flash just like a spinning wing decoy flashes, only sm- slower, right? You know, but, but the attraction thing is still there. It's and, contrast. Right. And, and you can, you know, when, when a decoy swims up a wave and pops off of it, and I'm not talking giant waves, you know, six inch, eight, nine inch chop on the water, you know, you, you just see that butt, you see the white, and then it goes away, and you see the white, and it goes away. And I mean, birds can see that from a long ways away. And I've always told people here that, you know, swans are great confidence decoys. You put a couple of those big old swans in your, you know, in your spread. I mean, that takes a place of dozens and dozens of decoys. Yeah, your visibility just went through the roof. 
So now you got the visibility and you can, you have the duck's attention. And I've seen you guys do this as well. As far as confidence decoys go, you guys have thrown coot decoys into your floater rigs. For sure. Why? So there's so many coots in our marsh. If, if you don't use them, you're missing out where we are. Um, and, and there are days when I'll just hunt over, literally I'll take 48 or 60 coots, you know, if I'm hunting in a hole that I like and I know there's a lot of coots in there, and take a half a dozen mallards or whatever and throw them out there with them. Because the birds will come into coots, you know, and the coots are always bobbing up and down and, you know, diving and doing whatever. So you got to have a jerk rig in there. If it Did you up. come up with that on your own, meaning that you recognize the fact that there are a lot of coots in the marsh? So you said, I'm going to, I got to get some coot decoys. Yeah, well, I got frustrated by it because there's a there's a particular part of the marsh on the club that John, David, and I uh, like to hunt, and it's big water, you know. And when the coots are there, there'll be tens of thousands of them. I mean, it's crazy how many of them there are there. And you know, so if you've got 48 or 72 or 96 of them, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it is if the birds are flying back into cover and you got you got a bunch of coot decoys around because everywhere they're landing, there's coots. You better have some coots. Mm -hmm. So when you say coots and upwards of thousands of coots in an area, they're born there because the coots don't migrate, right? No, they migrate. migrate. Sure. Coots do? Yeah, they do. They fly? They fly. They fly really low. And they migrate at night. And they migrate only at night. So when you say really low, are you talking... Power line high. Yeah. when they migrate through the duck club, there's dead ones everywhere in the compound because they hit the power lines at night. Yeah. Um... Are they coming from the same area that most of our ducks are in the tundra and the breeding areas? Are they where where are coots from? That's a good question, and I don't really know the answer to that. They do come from the north. I mean, they they migrate the same way ducks do, north to south, and then south to north in the spring. Um, but I honestly don't know how far they go or, or particularly where they come from. But we don't have. I mean, we have coots in our marsh year round until it freezes solid, and then they leave. You know. Um, but we don't have the number of coots that we have in late October, November, and December before it freezes mm-hmm. any other time of year than then. So they're, they're definitely migrating. Have you ever, because they are legal to harvest, have you 25 ever... 25 a day. And have you ever done that on purpose? And have you ever eaten one? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Eaten the meat or like the gizzards or the livers? Or have you actually breasted a we coot? Breast, we, yeah. Will Morgan and I shot... 47 of them one day just because I they were there and I was like have you ever shot them to coots and he goes nope and there was no ducks and I was like should be and he goes probably <laughs> we ate every single one of them that night you ate 47 coots in one we night we made tacos for all of my friends came down to the duck club yeah. we literally ate all of them they're like god these ducks are great what, what are these mallards and I was like no they're coots and they're like oh whatever I'm like go look in the trash can in the cleaning room <laughs> And they were like, no way. So there was like, literally nothing wrong with them. No, there isn't. but there's, they look big. They have a big body, but it's all feathers. Their breasts are made. The breast meat on them is maybe the size of a cinnamon teal. Really? Yeah. They're small. Cause they, in the, in the South, in the Cajun country, Louisiana and stuff, you hear of them, they got them out and get their live, their livers and they'll put them in some and different sauces. And their poodoo. Gizzards. Yeah. Poodoo. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that blows my mind that you guys, you, Eight forty-seven coots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a story. So, when you when you're looking when you're looking for a place on the public area to hunt, and you know, I want to talk public because that's you know what most of the duck hunting population sure. experiences on a daily basis or weekend basis. What do you want to be in an area to where there's less activity of hunters? 
which means there might be less ducks or do you want to like, cause there's a lot of times where the the ducks will build up in a certain concentrated area. And that's obviously where the hunters are going to go. You personally, Dave, do you see that and say, I'm going to get a little bit away from that and just kill the ducks that I do get? Or do you go in there and like the hustle and bustle of trying to compete with that much on a public area? What would your advice be to somebody? And if you do tell them to get away from the hustle and bustle, is there anything that they can do to, to give themselves a little bit more of an advantage? Um, well, it all boils down to, you know, what we talked about yesterday, John David touched on it earlier, is scouting, right? You know, if, if it's the only, only, only place that the birds are going into for whatever reason, I still don't want to hunt there if there's a bunch of people there, okay? I would rather go off to myself and, and you know, call a few mallards off of that, you know, a half a mile or a mile away and, and shoot a couple birds and be doing it on my own than, than feeling like, you know, seven duck calls are going off every time a bird you know, flies over the marsh. Um, as far as, you know, advice for somebody to do that that way, you your experience on those waters will tell you where the second best and third best place is likely to be. And eventually you'll get to the third or fourth or fifth best place and there won't be somebody there and, and you'll be far enough, you know. I, I, I've gotten over the years, you know, it's more important to me how the birds work you know, than it used to be. I mean, I want them to, you know, I'm putting out those decoys for a reason, not so they'll fly over them at 40 yards and I can pass shoot them, you know. I want them to come into the decoys. And um, and that sounds arrogant or whatever. I don't mean for it to, but that's just that's just the way I like to do it, you know. I mean, I, you go to that effort, you want it you want it to be done right, and uh, or what my definition of right. Um, so it's... It's difficult to say every public area is different, and I've hunted in a lot of them. And, um, you know, sometimes being a quarter of a mile away from that mass of people is plenty. Sometimes you got to get a mile away. You know, it depends on the, the conditions. If there's ice, you don't want to be near people because every time somebody shoots, it sounds like they're standing right next to you, you know, and it spooks birds for miles, really. Um, so it's, it's, it, that, that's a situation-by-situation situation thing. But, but if, if you have the choice of, you know, wading into the fray and hoping you can find a spot out there where you're not cutting somebody off or whatever and going off on your own and trying to figure out something new, I would every time opt for the second option, you know. Get away from it. Absolutely. I wonder why so many people get in fistfights in Arkansas on the public boat ramps then it's, it's like it's dangerous to show up at a, I won't even go to them you know they don't want to see us there at all in the, but you it's amazing the the amount of competition there is when the ducks get in the woods in Arkansas and what can happen in those public you know the 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 rat race that occurs it's like a bassmaster's takeoff right like the shotgun start mm-hmm. and it just these boats are flying around that's probably why they put it's obviously why they put the horsepower limits on boats and and try to keep some of them safe but when when you when you talk about growing up and hunting on a public area and you guys were you became accustomed to both because you could only hunt the club on Wednesday, Saturday, Sundays and in the past years a few select holidays. The other days when the ducks are in the area you're hunting the public area. So you guys are not having the advantage except for the fact that you do probably have a better idea of what's going on out there because of the amount of days you're spending there. Is that what you would tell somebody that's getting into duck hunting is time in the marsh even when the ducks aren't there or just in the summertime when you are able to navigate it legally on a boat or a vessel or the roads around it how important is getting 
familiarized with that marsh, John David. And I know you're very familiarized with it because I don't know how many nighttime extravaganza with flashlights and headlights we went on to look for jackrabbits and coyotes and, and different things. You knew your way around that marsh at a very young age. And did it help you become a better hunter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and it comes back to what my dad touched on, which is the options. You know, if you know, if you're, if you're stuck to knowing one unit on the wildlife area, your options are limited. You know, there, you may think you have options, but to have three different points in one little unit be your options. And then there's three boats in there and they're all in like, that's not options. Um, you know, don't, the, the one thing I would tell people that are trying to learn is to just don't, don't be afraid to, to, to not necessarily leave the shotgun at home, but have that be secondary to learning about a unit, you know, go put a canoe in, go put your boat in, go run around. Don't do it while everybody's hunting, do it in the middle of the day or do it like you said, in the off season. You know, I mean, I struggled with it last week, people going for boat rides at five o'clock in the afternoon, like just running around through the decoy spread. Had a guy get stuck in our decoy spread. That was pretty cool. Like, <laughs> like what do you do? What, like, did you try to sneak up on some ducks or something? No, like they just, you know, they just, they got stuck. They high centered their boat in the bay we were in. And, and like, we spent 20 minutes watching them walk the boat out of the decoys. Like, what do you do? Yeah. But no, I mean, I think people should, you know, when things are, options are everything. You know, I'm, I'm with my dad. Like, I would rather go hunt where there's less people. I've been in the rat race. I used to hunt and buy a meter every day of the duck season when I worked at Ridgentown. Like, I've been in that rat race. And, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. But at the same time, like, it's it's a miracle nobody gets killed there every year. Just oh, in boat wrecks, yeah. if nothing else. Um, but... You know, one thing I see with, with the newer hunters and the, uh, the people that are getting into it is the etiquette's not what it used to be. You know, it's, it's, it's not a big deal to set up 100 yards from somebody now. And it's like, man, like, there's 20,000 acres of marsh out here, and you got to set up right there. Like, there, you know, there's, there's more than just that option. So I would say the more knowledge you can gain from paddling around in the off-season or during, when the hunting's slow go look around particularly paddling because it's very uninvasive to other hunters unless you're you know in the middle of their decoys yeah the last thing you want to do as a duck hunter or any hunter is you know lose your shit over somebody you know imposing on quote unquote your your place because legally it's not yours you absolutely so you know a lot of times when you're out scouting and you see another truck a lot of guys are like oh i wonder what they're doing out here well no dipshit they're doing the same thing you are right yeah and then, but it is there. That's when the word etiquette comes into it is that if you get beat, you got beat period. Right. Unless that guy invites you to hunt with him, go find another place. That's not going to ever take a chance of messing up that group's hunt. It's not right. Those guys got there first. They obviously had the same idea. They probably had the same scouting report. They just beat you to the punch. So don't go in there and ruin it because the next time you're probably going to beat them to the punch and you don't want any of that stuff. So karma plays a big role in it, but etiquette's everything. And I think that with etiquette and duck hunting, if you do mature faster in your duck hunting career, career to where you do start to not run your boat during the prime hours or you don't sky blast when you're hunting next to somebody or you don't try to prohibit somebody from having success that that's going to make sure you know later on in your hunting career in your life you're going to have a lot easier time understanding the beauty and the majesty of what we're in the marsh or the woods or any other or the rivers or wherever else we're trying to hunt at right absolutely you know that's 
that, that's not what it's about. I mean, none of, I don't, I shouldn't say none of us. I don't believe I know anyone who goes out there to compete with somebody else. You know, that's not their primary reason for going. And, you know, there's in Nevada in particular, although this happens everywhere, you know, we, we have a limited number of wetlands here. And, and when the weather's nice, we have, a, um, you know, a lot of duck hunters using those wetlands. When the weather gets crappy, by, by that I mean cold and we get ice, that, that thins the herd quite a bit. You know, it's a lot easier to go hunt by yourself on public land then. Um, but, um, but now, or, you know, when you have nice weather or you live in an area uh, in the south in particular where the weather's always pretty nice, um, you're gonna you're gonna run into that, and and you have to make that decision that you can go and have a good time, and realize that some days there's gonna be a guy that comes in and sets up downwind of you, you know, and you just gotta live with it. Um, you know, confronting them is always a bad idea. The first thing I tell people when they want to do that when they're hunting with me is, I go, you know, these guys have guns, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's just keep this, you know, in perspective here. And people do stupid things, and you know, there's no reason to get in an argument when you're out duck hunting. I mean. You, you don't want people to do it to you, and, and, I, and I've had people say, well, we need to tell that guy. And I said, okay, but let's wait for him when he gets back to the parking area. Let's do it. There's, having a fight out here in the marsh is, you know, that's just counterproductive. And if he's all upset about it in the parking lot, then just walk away, you know. Yeah, and I, and I think that there, if you do approach it the right way, is more of like a, a educational thing educational than thing. In your face. Yeah, right. don't do it confrontationally. Right. You know, there's a, there's probably a time in everybody's life where they go through that hot head period. But I've learned that if you kill them with kindness more and say, "Hey, I, you know, I noticed this. If you don't mind, I'd like to tell you a little bit about you know what I've experienced out here. Maybe you just moved here from California, or maybe you just moved here from Montana. You really don't have the, the experience out here. Here's what here's what you know usually would take place in an instant like that instance like that and a lot of people are more apt to respond the right way with just a nice conversation mm -hmm. and <clears throat> i think that that breeds more into the sport that people are going to be more into getting you to know you better to get learn how to do it better and be a better duck hunter to where right. there's not those mistakes being made and I, there's no, i'll be honest there's nothing that irritates me more than sky busting i don't think that there's a place for it in bird hunting no matter how good of a shotgun you are go to the sporting clays range if you're going to shoot at something 70 yards and no matter what the ammo or choke tube companies are telling you i truly feel like what you did, said dave is there's just something about seeing a mallard duck or a puddle any other puddle duck species or john david said he went diver hunting the other day when you see a bunch of ringnecks do it the right way with their feet and them big ugly beaks coming in to your decoy spread it's awesome and I think that if people understand that and they see it done the right way, they're going to be like, oh, that's what they meant. I can't tell you how many people John David and I have taken. And, you know, they start to get up the first time the ducks come by, you know, and you grab them and you go, hey, just just relax, man. You're going to get to see the show, you know. And, and you know you're in the right place. You've watched the birds do this. And the next time the mallards come in, they're at 30, 35 yards. And, you know, Jack in the box is ready to go again. He goes, just hang on, man. They're, it's going to get better, you know. And they come back around. You talk to them right. And... You know, when you call the shot and they're back flapping at 15 or 20 yards, I mean, I've had people just stand there with their mouth open. John David and I shoot a couple ducks and the guy never fired a shot because he'd never seen that before. You know, and that's not because we're great duck hunters. We just figured out how to do that and shared it with somebody who'd never seen it before. And it's pretty cool. And if you can, if the sky busting thing is, is just a, it's, a, it's maybe one of the worst things about waterfowl hunting. I agree with you. Um, because you're, the worst part of it is you're, you're wounded birds. 
you know, that are going off someplace and dying. And, and, and you have no idea you even hit them. You know, it takes them a while to bleed out or whatever. And, um, and then the second worst thing is you're totally affecting somebody else's experience by doing that. And that's but yeah, I mean, not you, why we do it. You can shut an entire area down. One person can single-handedly um, from I, sky busting. You know, it's, it's just... Well, the, it's just the, it's just poor etiquette. I right. mean, it's it's not fair to the quarry that we're hunting. It's not you know. I mean, just it's not it's not fair to the birds. It's not no. fair to the other people around you. It's not no. fair to all the work that some people put into becoming more proficient at it. You know, and you've been to refuges where either you've seen it or you've heard it referred to where there's a firing line, right? So that means there's a closed part of the refuge that's no entry, true refuge, and then there's a public hunting area adjacent to it, or maybe some private ground somebody owns. And, you know, they'll line up right along that fence and shoot at the birds as they come out. And, you know, that's, that's some people's total experience of duck hunting, you know. And, and I honestly believe if they ever did it where they could see it the way we see it, that they would change. <laughs> I mean, I believe that, you know, because it made such a big impact on me. You know? Well, what I think when you talk, Dave, and when John David's talking is that the first thing that comes to my mind when you start talking about seeing it done the right way is how fun is it to... Think about in the last hour, every aspect of success or instruction that we touched on. We didn't like go into a full, hey, here's how you do it. Here's the only way to do it. We're not the, that guy. Yeah. You guys and myself, I understand there's a lot of different ways to, to have a successful duck hunt. We all agree that sky busting is not one of them. We agreed yesterday that jump shooting might be one of them if that's what you do. It might not be your choice to do that because you want to you get your duck limit. To, but if you're living off the land and want to kill some birds for a stew that night, then by all means, you know, if it's as long as it's legal and ethic, ethical, go do it. But think about everything we've touched on in the last 60 minutes from ice to wind, to sunshine, to hides, the scouting, to, to etiquette, to decoys, the jerk rigs. And we haven't even got into dogs. We haven't got into calling. We haven't got into recipes. We haven't got into a lot of the other awesome aspects of this lifestyle, but think about the fun, a person getting into this lifestyle or this passion, or you want to call it a hobby or whatever it's the strategy is unbelievable, man. You talk about being a national champion football coach like Nick Saban at Crimson Tide in Alabama. Well, think about being a national champion in your own mind or like when the Ducks do it right and you look at your buddies and went, man, everything that we've been working on the last five years, when we listened to Dave Stanley that day at the, at the Green Wings event, remember when he told us about a jerk rig? Look what those Mallards just did. And I've had those personal experiences with you. When you the first time we were in the cane that day, I mean, it was 15 years ago. You got a picture on your wall at the club. Those, the way those mallards reacted, you would say, you'd say, okay, watch, wait for it. And you'd pull that jerk rig, you'd hit your call, and, whoosh, and those mallards would cup up. And we had the hunt of a, you know, I always was, say hunt, but it was insane. It was. It was almost 20 years ago. I was 99. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> God, man. <laughs> Shut up, John David. <laughs> the only reason he knows that is because he had to go to school and you and I went hunting. Uh, yeah, we went hunting. <laughs> but think about everything that we've touched on. And then you start thinking about when you do get ingrained in this lifestyle and how it does start to own you. And then you start to think about it all year long. And you're like, I can't wait to apply this. But right now i got to settle for learning this or figuring out a different way to use my call, how to be quieter on a call, how to be louder on a call, when to call, reading body language. 
There's just so many aspects that go in for a complete duck hunt to really do it the right way and see it all come together. That's what I would tell somebody is get in this like it's a freaking game of Sudoku or whatever that game's called. Challenge yourself to become that guy that goes out and puts a complete hunt together from right. scouting to decoying to flat, even whether it's a Canada goose hunt or a, a, a diver hunt or a sea duck hunt. I don't care what you're doing. There's a right way to do it. It might be your right way, but at least have that feeling at the end of where you're like, damn it, man, all of that work and all of that listening and might be in a sponge really paid off. Yeah. And, and there's so many, there's so many avenues to educate yourself now that weren't available 15 years ago. You know, I mean, YouTube is incredible, right? And I'm an old guy, right? <laughs> Compared to you guys. And, and you know, that's not my, you know, that's not my first choice of way to, to learn things, but it's amazing what is available to people out there now. Um, you know, to learn how to blow a duck call is, is just a matter of turning on your computer and going to a, a myriad of places, you know, and people can immediately, I mean, between now and this weekend, a guy can get significantly better you know just by learning from that and 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 you know the same thing with the strategies and decoys and how you place them and and the weather you're looking for and and all of the things we've talked about and many others you know it's all on there now it's crazy i mean it is crazy the information that a guy starting out has at his fingertips that you know and, and i'm not complaining they're like patting myself on the back going yeah i did it through the school of hard knocks hey man I leached it off of every single person I've ever <laughs> come in contact with because that's one of the first things I talk to people about is, you know, hey, do you waterfowl hunt? Really? Where do you hunt? What do you do? You know, and the whole thing goes. And, and I want to tell you one other thing. It's, it still amazes me I, I get to the place I'm at now to where, you know, nothing is quite like when those birds make that last turn and you know you did everything right and they're going to come in and there's no doubt about it, they're going to come in. And, and it's not even the excitement of the shot. It's just getting to see that movie run one more time, right? F and for me, I hunted with a guy. The guy who started me hunting was my dad, right? I never saw my dad hunt over a decoy until they were my decoys. And he was coming to hunt with me when I was 20-some or 30-some or whatever. He loved to jump shoot. And that's what he did. And he was deadly at it, you know? And and it was fun to do it with him. And it was exciting. And 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 if that's what you have, I mean, I grew up in southwestern Virginia and we hunted little beaver sloughs and tiny creeks and stuff. And we killed wood ducks and black ducks and mallards. And it was a rare event if we killed anything else. You know, that's that's what we killed. And, uh, and that was fine. Um, uh, but it was a wonderful way to hunt. And, but we weren't affecting, you know, it wasn't like we were walking around somebody's decoys and jumping the ducks right behind their blind or something. It wasn't that kind of deal, you know. There weren't people set up in those areas because they didn't lend themselves well to it. So anyway, there, there's, there's a place for all of that, you know. And, and jump shooting is exciting, I got to say. You know, that's, it's, uh, I don't do it much anymore because I'm not in an area that, it, that lends itself well to it. Um, but, uh, but it is a fun way to start. You just you just brought up a lot of things that made my mind pop on a lot of different topics. One of them you said, um, and this applies to the club and, and duck camp and in in fun times. You said, you know, we've seen that movie a few times. You know, as far as those ducks turning, and you know, you got it. Both of you answer this question. What movie do you think's been played on the TV in your cabin at the Canvasback Club more than any other? I have my feelings on it, but there's got to be one because I've never seen a TV and a VCR that I believe is now transitioned into a DVD player. <laughs> By necessity. Finally. 
But, dude, what what is it? Is it Braveheart? Is it Wedding Crashers? What what movie has been played? Because me and John David the most super yeah. bad's up there at the top. Super, super bad. bad. Oh, Napoleon, uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, um, God. Pedro. Paid the one that's been played the most. Yeah, Duckman One. Really? Yeah, because John David was a dude, that was sick that was that was the commander. Most, that's still one of the best waterfall videos time. ever put out of all time. Yeah. It just but our VCR. It's cool died. because it's because it's. <laughs> It's it's not the videos of today where they're just these big. It was it was the way we hunt here. Like yeah. It was two guys sitting in a line. Yeah, with and a just, couple gadwalls coming in here and yeah. there, and then a mallard, yeah. and Coco and Phil sitting on a yeah, bucket sit, sitting on white buckets. Yeah, like, <laughs> proof yeah. that if you hold still, it really doesn't matter what color it is that yeah. you're wearing. But yeah, and have the sunshine. Yeah. Yeah. That, he's right and, and our our last VCR tanked out a couple of years ago so we haven't seen those in a while <laughs> but but there's you're right that's part of it too you know and my my daughter one time we were driving out to the duck club and we were almost we were past all the stores and out on the gravel road and Katie looks at me and she goes dad did you get the little white donuts you know those little powdered white donuts and I go ah oh, I forgot them honey we'll get them next weekend she goes no, Dad, it's part of it. We got to go get them now. And you can bet I turned that car around, <laughs> drove back to the grocery store, and got them right then because it was part of it for her, you know. And and those things are important, you know, whatever it is. And um, anyway, that is. Um, it it almost makes you get lost for words, huh? Right, right. It this does. lifestyle does. It does. And and so the movies at the cabin that you and I and all of us have seen a zillion times and whatever. That's all part of it too, you know. I mean, it's. You remember that, and 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 when you're in a group of people a thousand miles away, and some guy's making a joke, and he quotes a line out of one of those movies, you can see it in your head just like that, you know, just yeah. like you could see the last mallard that came in, you know. And it's all part point. of that duck camp experience it that is. we preach it about. Is. And what, Dave? Why is the music of John Prine? You when you scout, when you when you're when you're chilling, when you're processing meat, you're always listening to John Prine. I've seen him live with you. What is it about his music that has that is turned you on so much so much over the years is it the americana value to it the lyrics what is it his songwriting because he is a genius when it comes to lyrics what is it about john prine i think he's a great storyteller so you know you can follow the reason for that song you know as you're going doing whatever you're doing his guitar licks are are fairly simple but but well placed and well done and and you know he's 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 kind of the everyman guy playing the guitar. He doesn't have that great a voice, but he's got a great he's got a great song and and good uh, uh, you know and, and a good melody with it and and he makes it work. You know and 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 he sings about regular guys and regular stuff. You know what I can my definition of regular guys and regular stuff for sure. So like Dear Abby, you you consider those lyrics like. <laughs> Is that one of the better John Prine songs of all time? That's a good one. I mean, the guy makes you laugh a lot of times. They make you cry too, but he makes you laugh a lot of times. Yeah. What about you, JD? What are you What are you listening to when you're when you're getting ready or scouting or getting fired up for the duck season or anything that goes into your lifestyle? Are you a Metallica Slipknot guy now? Or are you a country guy? Who are you Who are you rolling with mainly? Man, you know me. Like I'm I'm all over the place. Like you. Like last year's last year's scouting tune was. Uh, Black Street, no diggity. Really? All the time. Really? I don't know why. It's just no diggity. Yeah, you just have you know, you have a good day after scouting listening to that song and that becomes a song for the season, you know. I mean yeah, it can be anything from, you know, 
Cowboys from Hell by Pantera to, you know, like John Prine, John Denver. Like it just depends. Yeah. It's 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 cool though that to know the the role that simple things of, of lyrics of what John Prine says in his songs or like somebody like Philip Ensemble Pantera that you, it sticks with you because music is that music is passion and it's a lot of life and I think that that's why so many musicians hunt and I think that they just enjoy both sides of that passion part of life. I've ran into tons of musicians that might be a studio guitarist in Nashville to a cover band in Chico, California, and when you go walk up to him and say hey, man, I really like that song. It, 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 it really magnifies in this part of my life. And they're like, yeah, man, that's exactly what we were thinking when we wrote the lyric or when we heard that lyric. That's what music does to me. When I hear somebody say, like, what you going to do when the money's all gone, like you've heard Lee say, or living the simple life like Drake White or any, anything that Zach or any of the musicians that we run with, they, they all hunt because they, the, the, the passion is there on both sides of their life when they're writing songs or when they're in the field. And I, I wanted to touch on that because I, 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 I've been seeing a lot of news of John Prine lately of his new tour and how he just went into the Hall of Fame and, and it's amazing what people say about that man when, when you think about Americana music or country music, a lot of people don't really even know about John Prine in my circle. They know Willie Nelson or Waylon or Merle or George Jones or Chris Christopherson. You know, that, that area of music, Don Williams, Johnny Lee, you never really hear like, oh yeah, we were thrown down with Mickey Gilley and John Prine. No, you hear those names I just said. Yeah. But if you sit down and really break down John Prine in the song, Angel from Montgomery, mm -hmm. is probably in the top five songs ever written in all of mankind. I think it was, was it Bonnie Raitt that yeah. made it mm -hmm. a number one? Yep. yep. And the, the lyrics in that song, uh, the last verse about how could somebody go to work in the morning and come home in the afternoon or in the evening and not have a damn thing to say. Is that how it goes? Yeah. Think about what they're saying. Drake touched on a lyric like that too. Like everybody's talk, everybody's on their phone, but nobody's, nobody's talking, but we're all on our phone. And we're sitting across the table right now, 20 years into our friendship and reliving memories, talking about instruction and, and how to apply different things to the waterfowling lifestyle. And we're having a blast doing it. At least I am. You know, I can't yeah. speak for you guys. You're probably like, man, will you shut up so we can get to the duck club? <laughs> <laughs> but, but think, But think about what those lyrics do and think about what that lifestyle does and what conversation does and how many doors it opens to talk. We just talked about, it. it's better to talk to somebody. If you feel that they're in the wrong, it's better just to let bygones be bygones and say, you know what, there's an easier way to get through this. And that's what music does for me. If you listen to the lyrics and not just the beat or, or the, the drum or the percussion or whatever, you really will start to get a, a different perspective of different thoughts from different people and start to have a better understanding of different people, my, why they might be doing it that way and why they might not. That's what I get out of music. I would, I would agree with you. And, and I think you have done a lot with the foul life in particular. Um, you know, you've made music a monster part of that, both by the people that, that you invite to hunt with you, you know, whether it's Zach Brown or Drake, uh, Drake White or whoever, Leith, um, you know that that's great, and because they're presumably good guys, and you enjoy their company, and they enjoy your company. Um, but you know that those guys like it, I'm sure, because it's totally different than being on the road and being in the studio and everything. You know, it's 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 a break from their 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 real job, right? But 
you you've kind of combined it to where you know that's a, that's a big part of the foul life is the music thing and that's that's cool you know yeah. i mean it is and i don't have tv i see the foul life i come over here and watch it when you guys are editing the shows you know but but it's it's a huge part of it and you've you've done a great job you and your team of you know tom and clay and whoever else have done a great job of combining that and and making that making that an important part of it and I think that it goes back to that ideology of the lifestyles and the different walks of life that do come together because of this, of duck hunting. And you have, you know, musicians, you have army veterans that have fought for our freedoms. You have athletes, you have doctors, you have lawyers, you have janitors. All of these different walks of life have come together in one part of this country or another or in Canada or in South America. Just the other night we had dinner here and all of a sudden we had our cook and our main and our main concierge from Argentina that are up here learning the American way of cooking and right now in a in a, a higher end fashion. They're coming to our wild game feed the other night, and we all had a blast, and we met because of a duck. And I think that that's what those celebrities or quote-unquote celebrities appreciate about is that once they get the duck camp, there's no celebrity anymore. They're just in duck camp. Yeah, it's all up to Mother Nature. Yeah. They're humbled. The, the, the amount of humility or the level of humility that they have to be around a campfire and not be being, you know, they understand that they're going to get asked for their autograph when they're out in public or get a picture taken or a selfie, but sometimes that gets old. A lot of the times that gets old. They're just people. And in their lyrics, if you listen to it, that's what they're trying to say is that, hey, man, I'm, we're, 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 Regular guys. we're just dudes that, that, that we're blessed with an instrument that might sound better than Chad's does in the shower. Maybe sounds better. Don't know yet. There's no proof, scientific it's proof. It's hard telling. <laughs> <laughs> but you also touched on Dave of, of Katie. And I, when I think of Katie, the first thing that comes to mind is that trophy that I have in my house still. She was the junior women's world cha- duck calling champion in Stuttgart. John David's placed in the top 10 over five, I think seven times now of top 10 finishes in Stuttgart on Main Street calling. Your brother Alan has competed on stage in Stuttgart many times. You've been a contestant representing the state of Nevada um, in, in the World Duck Calling Championships in Stuttgart, Arkansas. Do you remember the first time you watched JD or Katie in a contest? Is, is that a vivid memory of the first? Was it in Nevada, a small sanctioned contest? Was it California? What Do you remember the, the, that day? I do. I do, as a matter of fact, and uh, it was with John David. I, I can't say I remember the first time Katie blew in the contest because it would have been the hundredth contest that John David blew in <laughs> at that point. And uh, but yeah, and and you know that I, I my perception of of competitive duck calling is unfortunately it seems to be waning a little right now and that that's just my perception and that's an easy perception to get out west because there are not very many contests out here you know but i hear people who are into it i mean my brother's a call maker and he and i just spent a week together in alberta and he said yeah it's 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 um it's not as popular as it used to be you know and 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 that's probably just a a wave you know just like you know bird populations or anything else they go up and down but um but it was great for my kids and and, you know, think of all the times on the road, wherever we went on the road. And I'm, when I say we, I'm talking about you too, Chad, because we almost always went together. And, uh, and the people that, that are a part of our lives and will be forever because of that. I mean, we met them blowing a duck call, for crying out loud. Not even duck hunting, just standing in some asphalt parking lot competing for a, you know, a $40 blind bag you know? yeah. I mean, we, and we were in a lot of cases you know so uh and then the kids got into it and and i really got out of calling 
Um, I beat John David one last time and told him he was never getting another shot at the title. <laughs> and he was already better than me uh, a lot. And he was 11 or 12 at the he time. <laughs> but I did tell you, I, I was just going to ask exact words, didn't I? I was just going to ask how old he was. <laughs> yeah. He was nine. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he couldn't write yet, but he could blow a duck. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, that was. Uh, something totally if you had asked me that when I was 25 before I had kids if I thought that would ever be a part of my life I would have said no because it just it just happened and I had kids that just went wow this is the coolest thing dad we want to do this okay you know and that's what we did and we did it with you and we did it with lots of other really really good people some of whom you're now in business with and you know I mean they become lifelong friends and whatever and and uh uh, it's funny when you when you run into those people down the road, whether it's a year or ten years down the road, it's like you just pick it up and go from there, you know, because you know we all have a common experience, and uh, you know there are always going to be people that you're friendly with. What about you, Jay? Do you remember the first contest? You remember the first big win? Is there something that stands out in your mind? Because you're known as a hunter, there's no doubt about it, but you're also probably just as well known as an all around badass competition caller when it comes to ducks and geese. Um, you've competed in the world goose and had success. You competed in the world junior goose and won it. You've, like I said, world meat duck, world duck, every, you name it, regional state sanction contest. You've been on stage against the best. Is there one that stands out right now in your mind of whether you got your hand raised with the trophy or not that day that you could say, man, I'm glad I went to that contest. One contest. Well, I don't care. I mean, you, you've been no, to no, no. millions I mean, of any contest. I don't one yeah. contest. Well, duck or goose duck. Um, the North American Regional, which is Kansas City. No, it's in uh, it was in Moline, Illinois, and that was um, bah, that may be the biggest contest I ever win. You know, there was more people in that contest than in the world. How There's many? Seventy three. Seventy three callers, and what'd you draw in the first round? Do you remember? Was it later? I don't remember a whole lot from the contest because my buddies had we might have partied a little hard the night before <laughs> and Steiny had to lie to the lady at the front desk at the hotel and tell her that i had a heart condition and that they needed to give him a key <laughs> because i was late for sign up and so Steiny paid my entry fee and i ended up beating him really Just, oh yeah and um but you know that was those memories were fond but um that was just as far as contests go you know i mean that for me personally that was that was in my duck calling career that and the arkansas state that was the one for me the the arkansas state because you competed in the arkansas state yeah when i was working at richitone i won it you became a resident yep and you won the arkansas state yeah yeah that's a uh, you know that's I like mean, the last one that you can compare. well no well, there's one then. right after that not then it it used to be the night before the worlds um but i called in it when they changed it and it was in march or april but it's still the arkansas state like my name's up there with trey crawford you know i mean jim ron question johnny mafus like all these the the biggest names that will ever that's, pr- that's pretty the much stage. the world's unless you're from iowa and you blow an echo the arkansas <laughs> state's pretty much the the world's right yeah i mean there's i love rick dunn i love echo i'm just saying yeah. that historically it's kind of been arkansas iowa arkansas iowa there's been a louisiana champion lately maybe even an alabama champion there at one time there was a california champion mm-hmm. of the world david jade. david jade and then so you win the arkansas state how many callers were in that 30 some you know, not a ton. Anybody I know? Yeah. 
you know. I think at that point, Brad Allen, Phil Green, um, Daniel, Daniel Dew, um, Will, Nathan Davis, Will McBride, like all of these guys have all finished. You know, Brad Allen's three-time World Duck Hall champion, like, yeah, he's and, a, and a very good. You know, I I wish I got to see him more. I always thought the world of Brad. He was me too. His new duck he, calls he, are awesome. He, they are. He and I were going back and forth there a bunch when he won his first world. Who is the absolute best competition duck caller of all time? That you've heard. The absolute best? Yeah. That that you're like, I don't want to follow him. I don't want to compete against Well, of course you want to compete against the best, but who is the baddest ass main street, single read, J-frame blowing guy that's ever walked onto a stage? Trey Crawford. Really? Because because of he won it in three different decades. His feed chuckle's phenomenal. He could blow a hell call that you could hear from Stuttgart to Britain. Like, he had it all, right? Yeah. He's just... Not only that, like, Trey's a good friend. And that's one person I wish I would have got to compete against. But kind why of. is he the best? Why? I'm just talking technically and mechanically. Why is Trey Crawford? You hear that a lot from people. John Stevens has won it three times and won every contest known to man. Um, uh, Barney Califf won it on three different calls. Uh, there's a lot of guys that are still living that have had tremendous success. Mm-hmm. Brad Allen, who owns Elite Duck Calls in Arkansas, won, you just said, a three-time world champion. Why is it always Trey Crawford that rolls off somebody's tongue when they say that he's the – and you've hunted with him, Dave. I remember your yeah. story of the, the time you showed up in the woods and you're like, holy shit, listen to this guy blow this call. Like, he's special. Like, he's an amazing duck call operator. But why? Why is he always said to be the best of all time? Because if if you've never heard him blow a call, he just it, – it's the horsepower that's behind it. Like, it's – there's there's nobody like it no one i mean his his ducks it's not it's not a planned cadence you know it's not five notes and seven note hands it's not just the like it's you hear him blow routine and you close your eyes that man is painting the picture like every lick he hits is he's calling ducks you know it's 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 very raw. It's not, you know, from a technical routine standpoint, you know, and just as far as everything being perfect, John Stevens proved he's the best. Like, still is. Um, but Trey was, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like, you know, and Butch told me this. He goes, you know, he goes, you Sometimes he goes, John David. He goes, you know, you blow, you blow a lot like Trey. He goes, because when you screw up, it's bad, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but Butch Richard, but so is Butch a big reason why you can operate a duck call the way you can to this day, John David? Or was it more of his emotional support that gave you, or did, was he pretty, was he pretty hard on you mechanically as well? Butch, you know, I learned from my dad. And, and my uncle got me into contest calling. And then really, because we didn't have YouTube and stuff, like my uncle would send me VHS tapes of contests. And that was how I learned how to blow routines. Because nobody out here was really doing it. Um, and then from there, you know, I think I finished second in the world in 07. And then I went to work at Rich and Tone. And that was when I became 
really, really close with Butch. I lived with him for a while, and um, he and I were we were really good friends. And he, uh, yeah, Butch was hard on me, you know. I mean, he flat out told me when we were watching him. He goes, I want to show you something. I'm like, all right. He goes, you should have won a Worlds last year. He goes, but, well, basically, Butch just called me a pussy and <laughs> told me that I should have blown the routine that I blew in the second and third round and the first round and not been careful. And I, and I never forgot that. And Butch always goes, he goes, if you're going to lose it, lose it in the first round. But at least give yourself the opportunity that if everything goes right, you're within a point or two because to make up, I mean, I think I was seven or eight points behind in 07 after the first round and I got beat by one. Which is almost impossible to make up Yeah, at that level of call. I beat everybody in the second and third round for multiple points. Wow. Like, I think the last round I got a, you know, perfect score is 300. I got a 296. Damn it, boy. Like... <laughs> No. Wow, you know, I mean, but Butch was Butch was hard on my mechanics, and he he made me a much much better contest caller. I mean, it, you know, he's the the lessons he taught everybody and the kids is invaluable. Like, no, there will never be a replacement for Butch. Never. Who who is the founder of Rich and Tone Calls, and then John Stevens acquired the company from him and kept that legacy going, which Rich and Tone is probably. I mean, regarded as the best duck call company of all time as far as innovation and how they, you know, their their slew of champions that they've created and molded for everything from the worlds to every regional, like I said, state duck sanctioned contest, state sanctioned contest across the country. Rich and Tone was always and always has been at the top of the list for competition duck calling as well as their hunting calls. When you talk about what it takes to stay at that level when you lose by one point no seven and you play second in the worlds to be at that level when you when you're those judges are listening to those competition callers at that level and to be consistently in the top 10 every year you're pretty much a world champion in my opinion you have you don't get pinned it a lot or you might not get the trophy or the check or whatever but there is something to be said for consistency to be valued or judged that high consistently is very hard to do and when you start talking about the guys that you're competing against, you know, from you've competed against John Stevens, you've competed against Daniel Duke, you competed against Brad Allen, Barney Califf. Um, I, I can name them and name them and name them. I don't know if a lot of people listening are going to be into the competition part of calling or who's been very strong at it in the, in the last decade or 15 years, but you've competed and beaten almost every single one of them on the duck call stage and then you transition into short read goose calling and having a ton of success in that and when i show you this right here this picture here or this name right here what does it signify to you what does it mean to you to see that that's how i learned that about short read right that's who's responsible for it tim like, grounds yep i had the short read way i still got it that was how i learned like i listened to it and i figured out how to do it on my dad's half breeds um you know, Tim, I was, Tim's family, like, I've, I've been close with Tim for a long time, and obviously we just recently lost him, um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, literally the two, the two people that are responsible for what duck and goose calling, duck and goose calls are nowadays are now both gone, which is Butch and Tim, like, they, and, and, but, and Tim more so than even Butch, 
Tim, Tim's the reason there are short goose calls. Like he was the guy who figured it out. There, there, there's only one and he's the original, you know I mean? And that's, you know, you see the outpouring on, on social media and everything when, when Tim passed away, like it's, he's, he's not a small deal. And it's, it's, it's amazing how many lives he affected. Um, mine included, you know? Mine included. I mean, I remember the first time I ever saw Tim was at Stuckart. And I was 12, 13. I walked up to him and introduced myself. And I was just like, I was starstruck, right? Yeah. And he goes, he was with Trey. And I was standing there, and of course Katie was with me, so I was popular by association of my sister. Yeah. And Trey's talking to Katie and whatever, and Tim came back and he handed me a couple bands, and they were bands with his name on them from his company, and I still got them. Like, you know, the, the calls he's given me over the years, you know. I mean, and, and I don't want to discredit the fact that my uncle helped me a lot with my goose calling because he did. But the way I learned how to make sounds on a goose call was Tim, you know. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's hard to believe he's gone. Like, it's, it's terrible, really. What do you think of him, Dave? Tim Grounds. You know, he was so good. I thought the same, I felt very much the same about Tim as I felt about Butch. They were so good with the young kids. You know, and my kids were young at the time when I met both of them. They were they're amazing. They never, ever were too busy to help a kid. I never saw either one of them turn a kid down when the kid asked them to help them, you know, ever, ever. And, uh, and there's not a lot of people like that, you know. And then not only did they do that, but they were some of the best at what they did. So they were actually giving those kids like, you know, PhD information right. <laughs> and the kids are soaking it up. You know how it is. You, you learn to blow a call later in life. Chad, you know, a, a decade later than, or 15 years later than John, David, and Katie did, right? I learned how to do it, you know, longer than that later. And and when you're when you're blowing a call and trying to sound like a duck, you're gonna you're gonna develop some skill at it, right? But these guys play that thing like a musical instrument. You know, you tell John David to do a certain part of his routine right now, he'll just bang it out, right? And I got to start from the beginning because <laughs> yeah. it's all one thing to me. Right. right. And, and, uh, and, and those guys, I mean, Tim would, would tell him when he came off stage, he goes, Hey, you know, in that third part where you did this or that, you need to clean that up or you need to take that out. That's not good or whatever. And John David just looked at him and go, yes, sir. You know, <laughs> and he would, and, and he didn't have to do that. Tim didn't have to do that, you know, to, to take that extra interest. Um, you know, Butch, you know, I'll always be fond of Butch for the way he treated John David when he lived in Stuttgart. And, and as John David said, he lived with him and became personal friends with him far beyond work. And, uh, but, but Butch with, you know, Butch is synonymous with teaching kids to, to blow duck calls. And, and we need more people like Tim and Butch. And unfortunately, as John David said, you know, both of those heroes of his have, have passed away recently. And, uh, um, but, you know, there's other guys out there that'll do it. And, and, and John David's one of them, hopefully. Um, yeah, I've, I've hunted with Tim. I got to sit with Mr. Butch and had him 
tune duck calls for me and give me some pointers, even though I was never on the level, even though I did compete in the world duck three times, <laughs> winning the Nevada state yes, contest by pretty much disqualification every time from John David. <laughs> Thank you for squeaking you squeaker. But if you look up on the wall right here, Dave, you built me this shadow box mm -hmm. and in there is the rich and tone call collection of three signed calls, one by Stevens, one by Ron quest, and then one by Butch himself. And I was lucky enough to get that before he passed away and just, you know, walking into the rich and tone shop, and there was the cash register in that area on the left, the retail store up front, and then that glass window where Butch sat behind there. And it was almost like, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. it was, I, don't, I hate to say like a zoo animal because he wasn't, but it was an attraction to where you're like, holy shit, that's Butch. He's behind glass and he was like untouchable. And then when you got to meet him, he was like, yeah, come on in here and sit down. He'd be there cutting reeds and dog earing them and cutting cork and had a piece of cork in his mouth like it was a cigarette. And he'd be sh cutting on a reed down here or, or sanding on a tone board down here, whatever. And you're just like, a lot of people don't understand the the art and the the craftsmanship that goes into creating a, a a musical instrument like that. It's nothing different than a flute or a saxophone or a tr anything it that's a, you know. And, and when you mention these guys are like you know master musicians, they truly are. And they Tim proved it again and again by how innovative he was with the sound. It would be like Hendrix or or Jimmy Page or Slash on a guitar, and they you're just like, wow, man, they can do that with a guitar. Well, there are people on different levels of everything in life and there there is certain levels that you want to try to reach and butch Rick, rickenbach and tim grounds are at that level where people want to they never were trying to separate themselves they were always willing to give a lending him hey bub he'd answer his phone all the time hey what are you doing and he would he would just sit there and rap with you and then when you'd see him at the oregon waterfowl festival or the world goose or down in stuttgart or i hunted with him several times in colorado he was he was he's just a dude that would loved goose calling and had a huge passion for it and that's what I got out of Tim and Butch is that this industry, this lifestyle does have what you said, being starstruck celebrities, but they're not untouchable. They're not unreachable. They're right. just normal dudes that like having their six pocket camo pants on tucked into their boots with a sweatshirt on and a hat with a beard with a little bit of gray in it. <laughs> and that's what Tim had. And he'd just walk around with that little bag. He had that call bag that everybody that competed in goose calling one time had that Tim Grounds call bag with the two geese flying on and get down, cover up, come get you some, and Tim Grounds championship calls. And, you know, and his box has kind of transitioned to this over the years. But I had just gotten a call of uh, a shipment of calls from Tim right before he passed that him and Hunter tuned up. And, and, uh, it's just stuff that you look at and you take for granted. Like, yeah, I know Tim Grounds, so he's just a goose hunter. Well, no, he's not. Now that he's gone, you look back at it and be like, son of a bitch, why didn't I spend more time Bro. talking with him, hunting with him, taking his calls more? I'm every The last four years, he's come to my booth at NWTF. We just sit there and rap and listen to the Drake and Leith and the guys play guitar and, and sing. And Tim would just stand there and be like, hey, you mind handing me another one of them beers in that cooler? And then I'd walk over there with a the beer and he'd be like, who is this guy singing? He's good, dub. And he meant it. And he'd stand there for two hours and watch it. Four or five, seven, eight, nine beers later, you know, he's still standing there watching music. And you're just like, he's my buddy. And I just wish that there was people understood that this, there is, there are a certain level in this industry. And they were there. They were the ultimate, the optimum. And, and we all strive to get there. A lot of us will never even have the opportunity to get there to do what they do. But it all started with a vision and their ability to relate themselves to other people and not try to separate themselves and to always say yep i'm here to help 
I'll answer the, your call. I'm not unreachable. And I'm going to teach you how to do that spit note. I remember the first time I heard a spit note, Kelly Powers in Colorado. And everybody's like, that ain't no goose. And Tim Graham's like, yeah, that's a goose. That's a goose. And that's what, and, and then the spit note became so popular. But you talk about Rich and Tone and the champions that it's bred over the years. Think about the, the stages that have been graced with the Tim Grounds call. Think about the champions that have come off of a Tim Grounds call. Yeah. You just look at the everybody that's making goose calls now. Well, that's what they I was going to say. all started there. That's what I was going to say. If you like, look there's, at... There's not one. Yeah, if you look maybe, at... Maybe Trevor. That's it. Well, I mean, he still had but a lot... But he's new. He still had a lot of in, influence got, from Tim. you know, Freddie. Svoboda, Freddie, Boyles. George Lynch. George Lynch. Like, the, the list. Sean. Kelly Powers, Big yeah, Sean. everybody. Scott Trinan. Me at one time. Mm-hmm. You think about what Tim, as a businessman, you, you, you have all these guys in your corral, you know, and they're all working for you and they're all winning. They all got that Tim Grounds Championship call logo on their vest and on their hat and on their website. And, and you have a lot of pride working with Tim. And then all of a sudden one falls off, starts his own company and it happens again, happens again. All of that. And he's sitting there looking at it as an entrepreneur going, well, by God, do I, are these guys using me as a stepping stone? They see my designs and my dedication to innovation and then they just take it and run with it. Or should I be proud that I'm, you know, creating all of these minds to go out and try their own thing and it's it's a hard thing to answer it's a hard thing to think about or put yourself in those shoes the 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 first natural reaction is to get pissed oh man whoa that's my lifestyle that's what i do i i answered your phone calls i built your calls i personally tuned to my engraved them for you i supported you at contests i paid your entry fees i came and watched you you know, and that's natural. And that's what Tim always dealt with is that he was the best and people always thought they could outdo him. And there's some good goose call makers out there. I'm not saying there's not, but there's not anything that compares to a Tim Grounds call. And I'll go to my grave saying that there truly isn't. My, would you agree with that, John David? Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, much like, much like the dog call industry, like in being around Butch, like Butch kind of had the same issues, right? And and then as call makers, you know, they all have mutual respect for each other at some level. And, you know, there's there's a time there where Tim didn't get along with everybody, no different than Butch. But, you know, it came back. They came back around and mended all those, you know, all those friendships. And it all came back to what it started as, which was friendships. And, yeah, I mean, Tim's, Tim's calls are, they're, they're, you know, they're... It's what started it all. And His kid's pretty good too. No, He's that's why I, I was just going to ask you who is. Yeah. I've said this in public. There's, I've said who's the best competition goose caller of all time. Hunter Grounds. Hunter Grounds. By far. Yeah, I mean, if I had to tell you, there's three, space if, between if him I, if and I, the next guy. If I had to tell you three to bet on every day, it'd be Hunter, Hunter. Robbie, Wade. You take Wade Walling and Robbie Iverson over Kelly Powers. Yep. You would take Wade Walling and, and I, Robbie Iverson over the Dameron brothers? Yep. You would take Wade Walling and, and Iverson over Phil Hudnall? You didn't say yet, but you're shaking yep. your head. You would. Really? Yeah. Even though as consistent as Phil was, still is, he's a badass goose caller. You you would take Iverson and Walling. What call did Wade Walling blow? GK. GK. GK? Yeah. And, and Iverson was Tim. Yep. Three worlds. Big Sean won his worlds on a Tim if he won the worlds, but he, he placed high in it. He's won Second. several big ones. Second. You talk about goose callers and you talk about Gary he, McCree. He's and, another one that's one of the best out there. Who? Big Sean. Oh, competition caller? Yeah. No, just goose caller. Oh yeah, he sounds like a goose. Yeah. And he's a good you know, he's a good friend. He's a good dude. He he's got a lot of that 
Trey Crawford power behind him yep. when he would blow a call. Yep. Just keep the call full of air the entire time and just hammer it. And the variations. Nobody does it like Hunter, though. Hunter came to my booth last year in, <laughs> in, in February at NWTF this last February. And he brought me a couple calls, and I'm like, well, let me hear it. And I had a bunch of people around the booth, and, and Kelly and Kyle Jones and everybody, their booth is right next door. And uh, they didn't know Hunter was there. Hunter just had snuck in there, and we were hanging out, and his dad was getting ready to come in there and say hello. And I said, hit that a few licks for me, and he did. And I was like, and I'm literally like pausing going, because I've heard a lot of good goose calling, and I hadn't heard Hunter up close like that in a while. You know, it's been a, a good minute. And I'm like... And sure enough, here comes Kyle's head popping around. They wanted to make sure it wasn't Belding blowing that call. They're like, oh, damn. They wanted to make sure. And then, and then of course, Kelly and, and I was, or, or Kyle are like, oh, yeah, I knew it wasn't Belding. You know? But it was Hunter, and I'm like, holy shit. Just the power and the finesse and the technical, uh, the technical perfection of his notes and the way that he could waver his hand and his train notes. A lot of people you hear do a train note and it, it it's pretty good. He's got it like down to, he can do like nine different versions and variations of a train note that you're just like, that is a freaking Canada goose. And again, it's gotta be a trained judge's ear to hear that because a lot of times judges would be thrown off a little bit by sounds that Hunter and maybe like trying and always had that real trick low in game at the end of his routine. I remember in the Avery International in in 2005 in Denver, Trinan, we, we, I placed third in it or fourth. Trinan got cut in the second round, and the judges had told him that you don't sound like a goose. And I'm like, oh, you know, we might not have the right judges in here today because Scott Trinan sounded like a goose too. Still does. And, and Hunter, though, I'm telling you. He's on another level. You, you, blew, you were blowing that, that, that magnum today. And what call were you blowing today? Was it a short mag? Yeah, what was that? No, it was the um, super mag. So you were blowing a super mag. The old polycar super The old polycar. The, the one I, the bruiser. I, that's the one I competed with all the time. The, it had the sky blue and the black in piece with the sky blue barrel. Yeah, you wanted and to look just like me. You Well, no, you <laughs> wanted to look like me and sound like me. <laughs> I beat Bill Saunders more than you beat him, I think. <laughs> I probably finished second more to him than anybody I'm, else on the yeah, face. Yeah, and I the finished earth. third to you two more than anybody <laughs> on the face of the earth. But you you sounded good on that call day and you blow with a lot of power. You really give it. But Hunter, I'm telling you, like he is my favorite goose caller of all time. Yeah. And he was when he was twelve. Yeah. I was just like, You little son of a bitch, man. He'd coming back into that bullpen, I want to punch him in his gut and knock all the wind that he had left in him out because he was so freaking good. Yeah, he had a head start. But I know a lot of kids that their dads blow a goose call and they don't do what Hunter did with a goose call. Get granted, Reese Reese Stevens probably has a little bit of a head start being around Jimbo Butch. and Butch and and John every day in that shop. No doubt, there's no doubt that he does. But he still has to. He, he still, still has, has to have the drive to do he it. He still has to have the drive and perfect it. It's not God given ability. You got to teach yourself how to control a call well, like that. And you have to do it right for ninety seconds on call too. It didn't. You know, nobody questions someone like Reese is a good example can blow a call for sure. He can. But, you know, then the difference in Hunter and a whole lot of goose callers is he can do it perfect when you just say go. I, go go grab that call real quick, J.D., that you were blowing. Sorry, Dave, I wasn't trying to interrupt. No. Say it again. What are you saying? No, I was just saying that, that Hunter can do on it demand. on demand. You know, and, and all good callers can do it on demand. We were talking about that earlier. He plays an instrument. He's not blowing a goose call. He plays an instrument. And those are all notes that that instrument will make, and he can make all those notes, you know? And he, and he can make notes you and I never dreamed of making. When you, when you say, when you say um, 
on demand and you say blow this certain part of your routine it's almost like you put that into the hunting scenario of well you see these geese doing that well you don't start at the beginning of a routine every time when you do it. you got to recognize that body language those instinct your instincts have to kick in right right you have to be able to say oh they're doing this i'm going to give them this they're not doing this, so I'm not going to say this. And that's the thing about, I get asked so many questions about, hey, when you're calling, what are you looking for? Why are you making these sounds? Or what? when do you know when to say what or not to say what? And I'm, I think that, again, we touched on it, Dave, is that you have to go. You have to be out there and understand. It's just like me and you sitting across the table in a business deal. Mm-hmm. If it's not time to bring up the business deal or the cost or the proposal, then it's not time. I might have to take you golfing or get you get, get you a couple more beers in you before I bring up that part. You got to learn how to read people. You got to learn, hey, that girl's into me because of this. So I'm going to go and I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to go over there and just put my arm around her and say, hey, you're with me. That's not the right approach. You got to say, hey, you want to dance? Can I, you know how to swing? You know, you, you got to learn how to read people and what they want. Same with calling wild animals. And I think that when you when you compare competition calling to hunting a lot of people would have that mindset that oh those guys are just up there making a bunch of noise they're not uh, most of those dudes can hunt and they can read birds and they Mm -hmm. can apply those sounds to get birds closer and entice them because if you're saying the right thing to me in the human vocabulary you're going to get in tighter with me you're going to get closer to me right it's natural same thing with wild animals if you're saying the right thing at the right time that elk might only you might need him 15 yards closer to get that 40 yard shot we talked about with the bow well, what if you don't know what to say to get him those 15 yards or you say something at the wrong time that scares him 10 more yards away or he takes off, right? So there's a lot that goes into the ideology of competition calling and hunting. The main thing it did for me is that it gave me year-round practice. Right. It gave me year-round theories from different people going to these contests, not to mention the friendships and memories and good times. But it gave me the ability to have this entire arsenal of control. It taught me how to control a call better to where it took me a lot longer to get it than, say, a 10-year-old kid probably because I had a lot of bad habits already. I think that the number one thing that it taught me, though, is, hey, I can get down on this call and I can stay quiet, but I can still be effective with it at the right times. I can get let the call do what it was built to do and get a little bit louder on it. And, I, and that's what Tim would always teach me is that, hey, clucking and moaning will kill him. You don't need to be the fanciest. But if you can get to that point to where you can start making all of those different sounds that you're learning at these contests, it's still goose. Right. It's still that closing effect that gives the, that wild animal the confidence of saying, hey, I got no other choice but to go there. Because that sounds real, looks real, it is real, right? That's absolutely right. And if you think about what game calling has done for the three of us and what hunting has done for the three of us it's it's good that we can sit back and reminisce about somebody like tim and know the effect that he had on us yes what the effect butch had on us and i don't know if there you know if there's anybody else in the country that did as much for calling as those two guys did and i'm glad that all three of us got to know them on a personal level and we're better for it you know what i mean jd yep yeah absolutely what is what's your fondest memory of Tim? Man, I got a lot of them. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, just the way he took care of us, those of us that he considered friends and his close calling guys that were blowing his calls. You know, hanging out with him in Easton when he'd rent a house, and all of us would stay there all together as a team. Like it was, it was like being on a soccer team or on a baseball team again. Like all of us from all over the country. We're back together. And it was like we'd never left yet. We hadn't seen each other in 
365 days. You know, um, those times are irreplaceable. They're hanging out with him and Hunter and Duke LeVan and all those guys and Jared Perkins and everybody up in Oregon, the old Oregon Waterfowl Festival. You know, that was that was awesome going to some see some of those old duck clubs on Savi Island and stuff with them. That was that was cool. You know, just the cool thing about seeing him was whenever you saw him, it was like you A, you hadn't been gone that long, and B, you were part of the family and let's go hang out, you know. And he was he was like that with anybody that he thought highly of, you know. I mean it, it didn't matter what call they blew. It wasn't like he was just that, you know. My uncle and my cousin were always invited wherever we were on the East Coast and, and often were, and, you know. It was, yeah, I mean, Tim's, Tim's like an uncle to everybody. And know? he'll be missed. He'll be missed, and I'm glad that he played a role in my life. I know you both are. And let's do something a little bit different. Guys, I appreciate you being here. I know that I asked you to come and do this, and, and it's not very often that I get you both in the same town, let alone the same studio in the same day or the same couple hours. I know life is calling, duck club's calling, the wind's blowing tomorrow. You guys are all jacked up. I'll be at work. I'll be at work while you guys are uh, out there on your little boats and putting guy. out your little decoys. We'll send you Snapchats. John David, do me a favor. Take off those headphones and go stand over there at about kind of by that Brent Cobb and Drake White record right there on the wall. Yeah. Instead of uh, having Tom play us out with Leith Lofton, what you going to do when the money's all gone? I'm going to have my good friend who taught me how to blow a short read call. Um, John David Stanley, he's going to just uh, hammer down on this Tim Grounds championship call super mag that was tuned by and engraved by Tim himself. Tim, rest in peace. Thank you guys so much for listening today. It means the world to have my good friends Dave Stanley Jr. and John David Stanley III in the studio. This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. Thank you all so much. John David, hit that super maga lick. And Tim, this is in memory of you. Thank you for everything you did for myself, my friends, goose hunting, and the goose calling community. Thank you, Tim. Rest in peace, John David. That sounds awesome. Again, guys, thank you for all the support. This life ain't for everybody. See you next time.